Here we go. All right, Ezra and Nehemiah, you guys have your sheets coming back. These ones will be fairly quick. They're not long books, and they play off of most of the history we've already talked about. So we don't need to dissect the history a ton, but we'll set it up. And then the books themselves are fairly short, so we can kind of go through them pretty quick. Um, They're tied together. So I think these books are um, they're really helpful little like linchpin pieces in the story. They they lead us up, especially so Nehemiah will end like at the end historically, at the end chronologically of the Old Testament, if that makes sense. So the end of Nehemiah is as far in years basically as the Old Testament goes. Um, Malachi is is right there too, but like Nehemiah kind of takes to the end. And so then as you go through the Bible in order, we get to Nehemiah and then it'll start going back and retelling things from from earlier. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So like the prophets will be pre-exile or during the exile. Nehemiah and Ezra are post-exile. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where we are in the timeline. And if you look at that timeline I gave you back when we started Old Testament, it'll help connect those dots. I think that stuff is so, so, so helpful when you, because these books don't, they don't all go in order. You know, so, anyway. so Ezra and Chronologically, the last books that go to the end, and then the rest of them are like prior, like after, in the Old Testament after Nehemiah, are mm-hmm. the rest of them prior to Ezra? Um, most of the rest of them are. Malachi is later, but it's around the same time as Ezra Nehemiah. But most of those prophets are either pre-exilic or during the exile period or on the very tail end of it. But Ezra and Nehemiah are the narrative that leads up to. The people of Israel are back living geographically in Israel, but feeling unsettled. So now what? That's kind of where it ends. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good? Okay. All right. Let's talk through these books a little bit. So Ezra, before we do that, originally these books were together. Remember we talked about like First and Second Samuel were one long book that we had to split up for space. Ezra and Nehemiah were one um, like structured cohesively together. We separated them out because they're kind of distinct stories with distinct main characters. So I don't know when they made that separation. I don't know when they put them as separate categories, but the story kind of flows somewhat cohesively. Um, so this book of Ezra, this is, and honestly, this may be why they separated its authorship. So Ezra, we think was written by Ezra. Makes sense. There's part of it that's written in I language, I believe. I believe part of it's written in I language. I know part of Nehemiah is. Um, but we think maybe Ezra wrote it. That's not for sure. It would make sense to me. He's a scribe and obviously alive during this time. When it happened in the 500s BC, the 500s BC. So again, books like Malachi, I think, are written in maybe the 300s BC. So a little bit later, but not much else has really happened. Like when Nehemiah ends, it takes you through all the major developments. The only things that are left to happen is people continue living the kind of life that it sets up in Nehemiah. Is that, is that still clicking? Okay. So 500 BC, so during the Persian Empire is your next blank, during the Persian Empire. Do you remember the order of the empires a little bit? Starting, start with Assyria. Who, and Assyria is the empire that conquered what? Israel. Yeah, the northern kingdom of Israel. So what happened after Assyria? Babylon, who conquered what? The southern kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah, right, including what city? Jerusalem. Right. So then after the Babylonians were the Persians. Uh, so this, the Persian Empire kind of takes over from Babylon, and the Persian kings are the, one who are the ones who are like, hey, you guys can go home if you want. And that's when this, all, all this stuff starts. So the Persian kings are a little bit more lenient on the exile thing with the Jewish people. Make sense? Have you ever seen 300? Uh, no, I've seen like a scene or two from it. Is that okay? Like that's like the Romans three hundred. That yeah. so the that was the Greeks, right? Because mm-hmm. that was that's the one about the Spartans, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Spartans. And the, it is the Persian yeah. Empire. Yeah. Michigan State week next week. Spartans. Uh, so that one would be late. Yeah, I think that was the transition from Persia to Greece, or like Persia's mm-hmm. in power and Greece is kind of fighting back. Because then the Greek Empire will be the one that takes over from the Persians ultimately with Alexander the Great. And then from them, it's kind of the Syrians and then the Romans and then Jesus. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Okay, so the outline of Ezra. Go open up there if you're not there already, so we can you can just kind of see see it play out. Um, I looked at this handout and I wish I would have done the blanks differently because then they would all be ours, but that's okay. So the first one, <laughs> chapters one through two, the return of the exiles, the return of the exiles. So it's just kind of the story of. So King Cyrus, if you're looking at your Bible, who is um, the king of Persia. And if you're looking at that, verse 1-1, I think it's cool how it says. So this is obviously looking back and seeing like, oh, God is orchestrating all of this. It's like so many of you use your testimonies and all of us could look back. Um, I love, Jackson, what you said about like, I see these negative things, but you look back and like, man, God is, there's good that comes from that. I think this is one of those similar things where they're like, man, the Persian king said this? I remember when Jeremiah predicted that this would happen. Oh, this is going to be okay. You know, it's like you're able to look back and see God's fingerprints on it. So in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Okay, so we'll stop there. He basically goes on to say, so I'm going to let you guys go back and do that. But it's interesting how this language, I think, is not probably honoring, super honoring to God, right? This is honoring to Cyrus. Like, I'm going to give credit to this God because he has allowed me to have all the power in the world, and he is allowing me to build his temple. I don't think Cyrus is probably a God-fearer. I think Cyrus is probably a smart politician. Does that make sense? Who's saying, like, I recognize that every different geography has their own God, John Mark Comer, right? And this God has allowed me to be in charge of these people. He must have because I clearly am in charge of them. So we'll let you guys have your God. You'll like me. You go home, and I'll get credit for building this temple. Does that make sense, How what, what's happening here? But as the story is retold from the Jewish God-fearing perspective, it's God's pulling the strings here. Cyrus is getting the public credit, but God's pulling the strings. Because 70 years before, God predicted it through Jeremiah. And now Cyrus is basically God's puppet to orchestrate the events he wants. And he thinks he's getting credit, but God's in charge. Does that make sense, like the behind the scenes unfolding? And that's a lot of these stories. Is like, there's weird, like the political complexity is strange. The, like, why is the Persian king being so nice to them? Well, he's probably doing it for political gain. But God has really orchestrated it to get what he wants, which ultimately is going to lead to his king coming to earth and reigning, right? But God's kind of pulling strings behind the scenes. So I love that development. You read between the lines historically, that's kind of what's happening. You following me on that so far? Okay. Um, so the return of the exile. So from chapter 1 to chapter 2 is when they go. Cyrus says, you can go back, build your temple. I'm giving you permission. I'll give you what you need. Go take care of it. Um, and then chapter 2 um, is you're used to seeing these lists in the Old Testament, right? Like lots of people and lots of stuff um, because they're keeping track of their people. So it's easy to look at those and get bored, but look at those and understand what they're doing historically. Makes sense. They're keeping track. Um, so that's who, who goes back. Um, the person who's leading this part of the reform, your next blank, let me tell you your next blank and then I'll tell you that. Your next blank is rebuilding the temple. That's the one that rebuilding should have been the blank. That's okay. Maybe next time. Rebuilding the temple. Um, so the guy who leads that effort is Zerubbabel, um, which if you want to see how to spell that, you can look in chapter 3, verse 2. It's in other places also, but chapter 3, verse 2, Zerubbabel. Um, and he is, I think, functionally the king, governor kind of person of Israel right now. They're under Persian rule, but he's kind of the leader. So Zerubbabel heads up the temple rebuilding efforts. Ezra's not there yet. Um, but Ezra, I think, is kind of retelling this story. So um, chapters 3 through 6 is when they're rebuilding. And they, um, if you look at chapter 4, some people oppose them. And then the Persian kings give them, like, no, stop. Like, don't stop. Persevere. It's going to be okay. We're behind you. So that's kind of what happens in chapter 4, which is the same thing that happens in Nehemiah, basically. Um, so these things all follow a pattern. Zerubbabel's rebuilding. Ezra's rebuilding, which we'll see later. We're not building so much as like revival and the Nehemiah's rebuilding. I'll follow this pattern of like God moves the heart of the foreign king to empower you. You go do it. It gets hard. You persevere. And then things get kind of better, kind of more complex. 
then God moves the heart of a foreign king to send you home. And it starts going well. There's opposition. You persevere through it. kind of gets better. Then it happens. That's the cycle that we see Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Click? Make sense so far? Okay. One thing I want to point out to you is um, let's look at chapter 3 and verse 10 and read through the end of that chapter. This is a really interesting and important passage, I think, to understand the heart mindset of the Jewish people, the Israelites at this time period and moving forward into the Jesus time period. So chapter 3, verse 10, it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. So they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They've kind of rebuilt the temple. We're dedicating it. We're following the rules. We've got Levites in place. It's right. This is what should happen, right? Um, And it says, verse 11, With praise and thanksgiving they say to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. I think those verses really capture the like ethos of the people at this time clearly and like I said on through into the time of Jesus where it's like we're back, we've got our temple, this is great, but it's not as good. We had this whole worship service dedication thing which is great. But when they did that with Solomon, we skimmed through the stories quickly when we were in Kings and Chronicles. But when Solomon dedicated the temple, it's like the presence of the Lord falls in a cloud. And people are all moved to tears. And Solomon's preaching like crazy. It's just this amazing, like, this is so good. And this one's like, we did it all right. Everything looks right. Some of us feel great. It wasn't as good as it used to be, though. So we're glad we're here. Not quite right. And that's the mindset. And I think even heading into Jesus, where it's like, we've got our place, we're back, they let us live here, the temple's cool, something's still not right. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's what Jesus comes in to say, right, because all that was was a shadow mm-hmm. of what was to come. Mm-hmm. All that was into your rights language that you've probably read, if you haven't yet, you will, is it was a signpost pointing into the fog. Has he used that language yet? That kind of thing a lot, where it's like, this is helpful, it'll get you in the right direction, but it's not the destination, Like, if you look there, it's not quite right. And that's what the people are feeling. So what they match that, or what they kind of deal with that with is, well, let's make sure we're doing everything right so that we can get the result that we think we're supposed to get because that's why we got punished in the first place. And it's like, yeah, it's good to do, to try to do things by the book. But the place isn't the problem. Your rule following isn't necessarily the problem. It's what is your interaction like with other people? people what is your interaction actually like with god do you just want your land back and have a big temple that everybody sees or is your heart fully aligned to him are you truly repentant or are you trying to mask your sin with behavior it's those things that are not solved you know and this i think expresses that feeling which leads to the complexity of pharisees sadducees zealots all combining to hate jesus does that make sense I think it's a great little passage, helpful. This, by the way, this period of time, if you've ever... N.T. Wright probably talks about this in Simply Jesus. I don't remember specifically. But if he doesn't, you may hear this expression, Second Temple Judaism. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Uh, If not, that's okay. But that's a term to lock away somewhere in your mind. And it's more a scholarly term that's used to talk about this historical time period, Second Temple Judaism. Um, is an expression to describe the, the religious way of life and political functioning of the Jewish people in this time period on through until 70 AD, basically. So from Ezra 3, give or take, to 70 AD, which happens around the time the Gospels are being written, you know, like 30, 40 years after Jesus is resurrected, is the second temple period, because this is the second temple. Does that make sense? Solomon built one. It was kind of destroyed. Ezra rebuilds it. Zerubbabel, Ezra rebuilds it. This is the second temple. So if you ever hear second temple Judaism, it's the expressions of Judaism that are trying to solve this problem at the end of Ezra 3, basically. 
how do we deal with the fact that we're in our land, we have our place, but it doesn't feel right? That gives rise to Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, legalism, political alliances, all that stuff. That's Second Temple Judaism life. Does that make sense? And that's the world that Jesus steps into. Okay. Uh, next section, Ezra 7 through 10. That's where Ezra actually comes. Let's, let's look at chapter headings before we get to 7 through 10. So chapter 4, we talked about this. There's opposition. They persevere through it. Um, chapter 5 is kind of more opposition like that. And then Darius tells them to keep going. Chapter 6. And sends um, the, well, yeah, he tells them to keep going. So they finish dedicating the temple. Chapter 7 is when Ezra comes. So if you look at chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, After these things, so the opposition, the perseverance, all that stuff. During the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meriah, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzai, the son of Buki, the son of Abushua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. That's why that whole long list, right? The son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up to Babylon. So maybe this is actually Ezra writing, so he knows all this stuff. Whether it's him or not, they're trying to make the point. They're, again, they're, they're probably trying to solve for the feeling at the end of Ezra 3, where this isn't all quite right yet. But we've got a guy coming who's going to kind of help mediate for us, and he's related to Aaron. So maybe this will fix it, right? Like this is, They're trying to give a lot of credibility to Ezra to say who he is and why he matters. That's the Ezra that's coming. Um, so it's kind of set up to be like, this is going to be better now. Um, which it kind of is, but um, not all the way. Because again, we're going to follow that same pattern. Persian king sends him there. The people are excited to receive him. Things get a little bit better. And then they can't quite sustain it because something's missing. It's just not quite ready. You know, it's just not quite everything yet. So this section I would call Ezra's reforms. That's your, your handout. Ezra 7 through 10 is Ezra's reforms. So see, return, rebuilding, reforms. Uh, but they're all still there. They're just not the blanks. So return, rebuilding, and reforms can help you think about the book of Ezra. Um, so some themes and theological significance. We talked around this stuff. Um, let's see. Let's not do those blanks. Let's flip through the, let's flip through the text. Then we'll look at those blanks with you. So Ezra comes back in chapter 7. Um, you can see Artaxerxes writes that letter to Ezra basically saying the same kind of thing as the other kings have said. I have authority to do this, and I'm giving the authority to you. God's kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes of the political stuff. Uh, and then chapter 8 is going to give a list of names that go with Ezra. Um, if you look at chapter 8 and verse 15, you see it says, I assembled them at the canal that flows toward Ahava. So this is Ezra writing, at least in this section, if not the whole thing. Um, in chapter 8, he's, Ezra gathers like Levites and temple workers, and they fast, and he consecrates them, and they pray. And it's like, we're about to go work in this newly built temple. Let's get ourselves spiritually ready before we go do that, um, which is a big deal. For one, again, he's just following kind of the protocol and the rules he's supposed to follow, which is helping you. But another just great reminder for us, not, I mean, they fast for days because they're about to go work in the temple. So we, I don't, you know, we clearly don't need to live under the same kind of like, we don't have the regulations for the sacred temple cult kind of worship. Uh, that word cult isn't always bad, by the way, you know that. Cults are weird, but to worship in a cultic fashion just basically means like, there's things we know that other people don't know, and it's kind of an insider thing. Does that make sense? It's not always negative. Okay. I said that word and realized it's weird. So we don't obviously operate in the same kind of system, but... How seriously ought we to take the things that we do? Like we're entering into leading worship. We're entering into teaching, to preaching. Those are sacred moments where really heaven and earth intersect in the spiritual realm that we don't see. And what a gift that we can do that. What a gift that we don't have to be scared of it. You know, we can step into those moments and navigate through them. Even discipleship moments. You know, you're, if you know, like I'm going to have a phone call. I'm going to meet with somebody. You're sitting down to coffee and you're going to talk life. You're going to do pastoral counseling kinds of stuff. Those moments are sacred interactions where God meets humanity, like really. And how often we enter those, like, oh, I've got a meeting, I've got a meeting, I've got a meeting, we've got coffee, we've got plans, we did our thing, and we're going to do it because we're busy or whatever. But, like, heaven is coming to earth in that moment in ways that we can't fully see but are real. 
And so I love that this example here of, of him saying, we're about to go work at the temple. So before we even get to the city, we're going to fast for a few days. And we're going to pray for a few days. And we're only going to eat certain things. You've got to get your whole body and mind and heart aligned for this. We're not just entering it lightly. It's a big deal. So I, we don't need to do the same thing. But I just wonder for your environments, for your rhythms, for your spaces, for your typical stuff that you do. Um, and the, the big stages are the easy ones to think about, you know, like worship leaders and preachers. But all of these moments are sacred moments. How can we build into them an awareness and a reminder that it's not just the routine of our day, but it's God interacting with people through us? What a crazy thing that we do. It's insane what we do. Like we should be, we should have some fear of the Lord in what we do. We're the person sitting in between another human being and God. And he doesn't need us to mediate, you know, they can go straight to him. But that's, that's our job, is to help facilitate those interactions. So this is why, um, it doesn't always have to be fancy either, by the way, like a big, a big ordeal. Quiet time is a big deal. Regular prayer time is a big deal. Just keeping our hearts in those places where at any given moment, at the drop of a hat, at the ring of a phone, we could be interacting with people mediating between heaven and earth. Make sure we're ready for that. Make sure we're set apart and consecrated for that. Make sure our hearts are in a place to be able to step into those moments. And of course, God makes up the difference, but um, I love that Ezra really sets apart that time. Okay, so chapter 9, my heading says, Ezra's prayer about intermarriage, yours probably says something like that. So at this point, they find that a bunch of Israelites, a bunch of Israelites living there, have intermarried with foreign women, or, it's, or you know, vice versa. Probably not as much vice versa, but probably a little bit. Um, which is not what they're supposed to do, right? They've intermarried with the Canaanites, which is who they weren't supposed to marry. So now we've got um, foreign people living in Israel with this newly dedicated temple. But the whole reason they went into exile in the first place was not following the law and not taking seriously keeping themselves holy as separate. Now, we know from Genesis 12 that God's intention was always that all nations be reached and be blessed, right? He's not just trying to set up an isolated, keep everybody out community, but he is trying to set up a holy community. And if you want to join this community, there are things you have to do to become like us, and you certainly can't bring idols in. But what was happening with this was a very lax way of saying, we want to get married, and it's helpful politically, and I like you, and sure, you can worship that God, doesn't bother me. And that's what's happening. And Ezra's like, wait, we've got a new temple we just finished rebuilding we just rededicated have all these workers set aside and consecrated and now you're marrying who and they're bringing what like we're not doing this we're putting a stop to this because this is what led to this whole problem in the first place so Ezra and the elders take like pretty drastic action and say anybody who's married a foreigner you've got to get divorced we're putting it into that right now now the text is not clear about whether or not this is explicitly God's will. Like it doesn't say, then the Lord spoke to Ezra and said, everyone must get divorced because this is bad. But it does say, the other advisors came to Ezra and said, we think we need to take drastic action to take this seriously. And Ezra's like, yeah, you're right. We're putting an end to this now. So um, if you watch like the Bible Project video on this, they're pretty hard on Ezra. I think harder than they should be about like, God never said to do this and this is a mess and Ezra created problems. Like, I don't think it's quite that drastic. I think what what it's trying to illustrate is not Ezra took it too far and made a human decision that was unwise or unhelpful. I think what it's what this story is trying to convey because it kind of it doesn't even say that it created problems. It just said everybody got divorced, which is sad and does create problems. But the text doesn't talk about that. The text talks about trying to solve a problem, right? So I think what's what's happening in this story as we have it is less about, is this a good decision or not? And more about, Ezra is trying to be a faithful leader in saying we've got to make changes from who we've been. And even more so saying, but how much change can we actually make that's going to make a lasting difference? We're kind of like running through the mud here. Does that make sense? It's like Ezra makes a big decision that, I, that given what we have in the text, makes sense to me. We just got here. And now I find out you're intermarried. You weren't supposed to do it. We've got to put a stop to it because we're worshiping this temple or we're making drastic changes. Makes sense to me. But is that actually going to solve it? No. The issue's way deeper than that. What do we need? We need somebody to change the heart. 
we need somebody to provide a new way out. We need somebody to more clearly get us on the right path. Does that make sense? So I think it's creating kind of a, we don't have a solution yet that we need. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so themes and theological significance. Are you finding something interesting, Gabby? Yeah, I'm just like reading like his response to it. Yeah. And I'm like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really good. Read that for us. So it's, Ezra's response to me when he finds out. Yeah. Yeah. So nine verse three says. Yeah. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. And then verse five, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. So he spends a whole day mourning over this. Here's what I love about that, too. He doesn't say, God, look at these people that made such stupid decisions. Mm-hmm. Ezra, who, as far as we know, is innocent, mm-hmm. is saying, we have sinned. Mm-hmm. God, we are so sorry. My translation wow. for verse 3 says that he sat down devastated, which I yeah. think, like, adds to it. Because yeah. appalled, I think we that translation can make me think that he's sitting there, like, so, in disgust. Yeah, but it is where he's, like, devastated. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. So a couple things to take from that, I think. Again, his desire for holiness here, that like, let's do this right. And he really is like, we've got to get it right. But then as the spiritual leader for this community, the way he takes personally their failure mm-hmm. and takes part in the solution, right? So I think that can be instructive to us um, on a practical level that sometimes we just carry that weight, like it or not. Like if you're going to do this spiritual leadership for people thing, you're going to carry the weight of the decisions they make. You know, when... when you sit down with somebody and they tell you, I think I'm going to leave my wife or I've been cheating and our marriage is falling apart. That sucks on all kinds of levels. That's not my fault. But I'm going to think about it for the next five days nonstop. And it's going to make dinner time hard and it's going to make me distracted. Like we just carry, you, you carry it. You can't help but carry it. So on a practical level, I think it's instructive for us to remember spiritual leaders, we're going to carry the weight of that stuff. But then on the spiritual level, seeing the way he intercedes in first-person plural language, ownership, our, us, we language. Again, even, even though as far as we know he's innocent, mm-hmm. he still says, okay, God, I am coming to, before you as a representative of us. We have sin that we need you to fix. He doesn't just blame it. He's not just nose stuck up at them, appalled at them. He's appalled at the situation and takes some ownership. And that's some of our role. Not no, he's. I don't think Ezra is held accountable spiritually for people's intermarriage, right? He's he's going to have his own record to settle with God in different ways. But as a leader, he stands with it, and he stands with him, and that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Okay, um, let's fill in these next blanks. Themes of theological significance for you. <clears throat> the temple is good. The temple is good, but it's not enough. The temple is good, but it's not enough. That's from three ten to thirteen that we read earlier. Um, where it's like, this is great. We're still not satisfied. It's still not spiritually right. There's something missing. Um, which then we can kind of fast forward our minds forward to where Jesus uh, in Matthew 24 is leaving the temple with his disciples. Do you remember this story? And they say, Jesus, look how big the temple is. Look at the stones. They're gigantic, which they are. Look at how magnificent this place is. And Jesus just says, someday it's not even going to be standing it won't matter or think to John when Jesus says destroy this temple I'll rebuild it like he's not referring to the structure Mm -hmm. he's referring to the deeper thing and saying you can have this place all you want Mm -hmm. and there's going to be a mixture of celebrating and weeping do you have my presence Mm -hmm. tear down the structure I can fix it and that's exactly what he does he's the only one who can provide the solution for that um, the next one, enforcing morality is important, but it's not lasting. Enforcing morality is important, but it's not lasting. That's the, like when Ezra's so sad and then forces them to like, you weren't supposed to intermarry, now you're no longer married. Like drastic, again, the complexity of is that the right thing or not, I'm not sure. I love the zeal, at least, but it doesn't make lasting change. We're going to read at the end of Nehemiah, the same issue. Same issue. Once Nehemiah comes and rebuilds the walls, people start doing the same thing. And Nehemiah is really mad about it too. So that's not going to fix the problem. It's still not going to fix it. 
I don't. I think it's good for the spiritual leader to try, but forcing them to like you did a bad thing, change it. It's not going to fix it. Yeah, Rosie. Do you think he was familiar? Like, like this action reminds me a lot of like Finney. Yeah. He was just like. Yep. Yep. Like that's what this feels like. It's really dramatic. Yep. Like we're just going to change. Yep. Now. I don't care what it is. Yep. Do you think he was familiar with the story? Yes. Almost for sure. Yeah. 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 And and I think, again, kind of catapulted to New Testament times, stories like Phineas mm-hmm. and probably like Ezra and Nehemiah would have been famous. They would have been the like, maybe you hear the one about Ezra, mm-hmm. we're going to be that way. So there's the tribe of zealots yeah. who are like, we're doing that because those are our heroes. Mm-hmm. We're going to do it that way. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's good. All right, Nehemiah. Ready? Okay. So the author, Nehemiah, at least in some sections, I know, at least in some sections, there's a lot of eye language here. So I, I assume Nehemiah wrote all of it. Ezra might have written it. Maybe they worked together. Maybe they both wrote both. Who knows? But uh, maybe Nehemiah. When it happened, this is, this is all the same stuff as Ezra. 500s BC, because it comes kind of right on the tail of it, uh, during the Persian Empire. 500s BC during the Persian Empire. Now, on this outline section, I got my R's in the right place. So, uh, these, these things with all the R's read like a list of church plant names. Have you, if you ever think about it, notice how many church plants start with R-E something? Yeah. Restore, renew, renaissance, renovate. Yeah, they're all, they're all that way. But they're good words. Like we're doing something over again. We're fixing something. Resurrection is kind of, you know, works. So, Nehemiah 1 through 2, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. So let's look at those chapters. I'm going to kind of glance through them. Again, this follows the same kind of pattern as Zerubbabel, as Ezra. So Nehemiah, um, if you're familiar with the story, is working for the king, um, working for the king of Persia. And then he kind of feels, he overhears somebody talking about Jerusalem. He feels led to do something about it. He's working for Artaxerxes, who is the king who sent Ezra. You remember that? Artaxerxes was the Persian king who sent Ezra to go um, dedicate the temple. Nehemiah is working for him, and he tells Artaxerxes, I feel devastated for my people. I wish I could go back and help. And Artaxerxes says, yeah, you should go. So that's chapters 1 through 2. At the end of chapter 2, Nehemiah gets there and looks around and is like, oh boy, this is bad. That's kind of how it, how it starts. Chapters 3 through 7, Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. 3 through 7, he rebuilds the wall. And it's, again, going to be the same thing. If you just look through these chapters, it reads so much like the stories of Ezra. So in chapter 3, it talks about um, the people who were helping him build it and kind of their plan of attack, the different gates you know, around the city that they're going to install. Um, chapter 4 is when people, Sambalet is the kind of head guy of the opposition, but people come to them opposing them. Uh, and they persevere through that. Chapter 5 is an interesting story. Um, Nehemiah finds out like right in the middle of this um, section of them rebuilding kind of persevering through opposition and people not wanting to help them in chapter 5 Nehemiah finds out that the Israelites are charging each other interest on loans or are forcing each other to kind of go into debt or to become slaves to pay off debts which is like common business practice that those kind of language like the language of slavery sounds awful obviously the way it would have been meant back then usually would have been more like oh you can't pay for this thing i provided for you that's okay just work for me for the next couple years and we'll call it even it's like it's a typical business arrangement often not always um that kind of thing was happening interest on loans was happening which were things specifically that god told the israelites in the law you can charge foreigners that stuff but with each other don't charge interest with each other don't create these unfair systems that are going to keep you enslaved for years and years and years Treat each other more graciously. That's how they were supposed to treat one another. Nehemiah finds out they're not doing that. And he's like, no more of that. All those debts are forgiven and we're operating different. And so he's similar to Ezra. Finds out about an injustice, corrects it quick and drastically, and they make change. And he finds those people who have kind of been oppressed and and, uh, is generous with them. Um, Chapter 6, more opposition. You see that? And then at the end of chapter 6, they finish the wall. Uh, And then on into chapter 7. 
uh, it's going to list out all the people who are back there with them. Again, they love their lists of keeping track of who's there, who comes and goes. Uh, and that takes us through that section. So then the next section, Nehemiah 8 through 12, Ezra and Nehemiah lead a revival. Ezra and Nehemiah lead a revival. Uh, Nehemiah 8 is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. So, so, so good. If you're not familiar, you should read it. Um, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, I think is the best description of good Bible teaching and preaching in Scripture, I think. Um, Just so clear. Um, So if you ever are thinking about, how do I do a lesson, or how do I study, or I just need, like, I, I got asked to teach, and I'm just feeling, like, stuck. Nehemiah 8, 8 is a great place to just, like, Follow that pattern. Get inspired, but then also just follow that pattern. Go read the book. Go explain it. Make it clear. Give people the meaning so that they can understand. And if what you're teaching isn't something that people can understand, then you haven't taught it. And that's on you, I would say. So as ministry leaders here, it's on us to make this make sense, which means we need to do the digging, and we need to do the thinking, and we need to do the study, and we need to do the praying. So that when we stand before people, we can help them make it make sense. Now, the Spirit ultimately applies it, clarifies it, inspires it. Like, we can't create power out of this. But we can remove understanding barriers from this. And I think that's our job. And, again, I would just say it kind of that bluntly. Sorry. If people don't understand what you're saying, if how you're communicating isn't clear, if what you're giving to them is still full of like it's too many rabbit trails and too like if you haven't gotten it clear and they don't understand that's on us that's our job and so it's worth figuring that out and it's worth the time it takes that's why we do word studies that's why we do sermon series practice that's why we do devos to get practice because the whole goal is clarity and making sense Um, because this is power and if we through our human words create barriers with lack of clarity then I don't want to stand before God having to apologize for that someday. God can overcome all kinds of lack of clarity, but I would rather him not have to do that, you know? Let's just give him a clear path to people's hearts. Um, okay, that's chapter 8 in a, in a nutshell. And then what happens in um, at the end of chapter 8 and into chapter 9, when Scripture is preached and taught, like they, they finish rebuilding the walls, and then they read Scripture for hours and hours and hours and hours. People are so convicted by what they hear because they haven't been living in line with it that they're just like cut to the heart, weeping, mourning, confessing, apologizing. They, they find that there's a feast written about that they haven't celebrated in a long time. So they go celebrate it, live out in the wilderness in tents. And they're like, we're doing what this says. Chapter 9, that stuff continues. Like, we're just going to confess and repent. We've been so wrong. Um, and they do that for a long time. Chapter 9 is long. And it's a long prayer of confession, basically. Um... And then chapter 10 is a list of all the people who signed the confession statement, basically. Another list of those people. Um, and then into um, chapter 11, it lists the people who now live in Jerusalem. So the chapter before is like, here's all the people who are kind of the heads of writing this confession thing. Chapter 11, here's all the people who live here, just because we're keeping track. And then chapter 12 is the priests and Levites specifically who live there. And then they dedicate the wall halfway through chapter 12 and kind of have a service similar to what they did with the temple. Is this all flowing? I know I'm going through fast, but I think it's simple narratively, so I don't want to camp out too long. Could you expand a little bit on the like, confession covenant? Like, why they like, created something and then signed it? Yeah, um, I'm, I don't know for sure, but I would guess it's it's just like it makes it more official. It makes it feel more like Hey, we all are agreeing to this. It's, it would almost be like, um, oh, what's a good example? What's a good example? Almost like a petition. You know, where it's like, we, the undersigned, think that you should make this change in government or whatever. Or, you know, we as a group of people want to express our gratitude to you. It's like when we do thank you notes for people almost. Like, we don't all write those thank you notes. There's other ways you could express gratitude, but when a guest speaker comes in here and we all sign it, it's kind of saying, like, yeah, I put my name to that. We're grateful for you. We're glad you came. Um, does that make sense? I think it's that, but on a larger scale, them just saying, like, we're feeling all these feelings. We've been really wrong. Let's write down our version of it. Let's just express what we're all feeling and sign it. Because we as leaders of this community are saying, it's time for a new way forward. And so I think they're just... 
like it's almost like let's not just talk about it let's not just feel it what are we going to do write it down so that the next generation can see mm-hmm. that we made a change we put a like a stake in the ground and we all sign it put your name on it I think it's just making it official was that like a common thing or was this just like a one I don't know time? maybe okay yeah, I don't know that it's like a specific Jewish practice or something. But, again, I mean, I, I gave a couple much smaller, minor scale examples yeah. nowadays. I think, in principle, it, it still applies. Mm-hmm. It's almost too, like, you know, you have to get some documents, like, notarized. That, that is so weird to me. Like, how do you become a notary public? And who decides that? <laughs> and why? The people who have the ability to be a notary is such a random group of people. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, always a yeah. weird thing. But but there's like, if you make a will, it has to be notarized. Like, okay. who, who gave this? Per- anyway. The, in principle, the, the thing still applies though to me where it's like, we, yeah, if we have a will and we wrote out, here's what we would want to happen to our massive fortune that we don't have and who we want to take care of our kids and whatever. Then we we need to we can't just think about that or even just tell a couple people close. If I just told my you know family members, that wouldn't count. Mm-hmm. You have to write it down. Has to be notarized. Make it official. Now nobody ever sees it. Mm-hmm. Nobody's done anything with it. Hopefully you don't have to, but it's there. We wrote it down. It's official. It's real. And so I, I think they could look back and it's written down. It's official. It's real. So I think mm-hmm. even today we do it, but I don't know if it's a specific kind of practice. Anything else on that or other stuff we've covered so far? Again, I know we're moving a little quick through Nehemiah, but... Okay. Uh, Okay, so at the end of chapter 12, they dedicate the temple, um, set up people to work in it. And then chapter 13 is, again, a lot like the end of Ezra. Um, So this part on your handout, Nehemiah confronts rebellion. I call it Nehemiah confronts rebellion. So Nehemiah goes away for a little while and comes back and starts finding things that are out of line. Like um, One thing he finds is the guy who is a priest who is put in charge of something. He's friends with somebody, and so he gives him, basically lets him like live in a storeroom that was supposed to store sacred things for the temple. But he's like letting this guy have this big wealthy room. And Nehemiah finds out about that and puts it into it right away. Um, so there's a couple things like that that he finds, like, we're not doing this anymore. Um, he learns in, in verse, this is chapter 13, verse 10. He says, I also learned the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So remember in the law, it says, whatever money is given, whatever first fruits are given, the Levites are supposed to get a portion of it because their job is to work at the temple. So they don't need to spend all their time doing another job. We want them to work at the temple. Mm-hmm. So you guys need to pay for that. They haven't been paying for it, so the Levites are like, we can't live here then, and they go get other jobs. Well, then who's tending to the temple? Nobody. Mm-hmm. And so Nehemiah's like, we got to get this back because we need Levites here to work here, which like, let that sink into your heart, you know, again, for us. We're not the same as Levites, but we're in the ballpark. We, if you're called to ministry life, vocational ministry full-time, other people are paying your salary so that we can work here and navigate the things of God full-time. Not everybody needs to do that, but some people need to. And it's worthwhile, and it's awkward, but we should get paid. And probably not a lot, because it's other people paying so that we can navigate the things of God with them. So we shouldn't expect a lot, but I think it's fair to be paid to do what we do, so that we don't have to worry about other things because this matters. Does that make sense? So those, these little things like that, I think for one are, are interesting to see Nehemiah's leadership to say, hey, we're not doing that right. We need to get this fixed. Otherwise, we're not going to have people tending to worship well. But also for us to be like, this way of life is reasonable and godly. Here's how we do it. Here's biblical precedent. Um, I think it's, it's helpful for me to know passages like that exist and why we do what we do. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Questions, thoughts? All right. Uh, what else do I want to see? Chapter 13, there's also intermarriage, and Nehemiah gets mad about that. Interspersed throughout chapter 13 is a couple times when, God, when Nehemiah says, like, so I found this thing wrong. Here's how I tried to fix it. God, don't hold me accountable for that. I'm trying. These people are crazy, is my paraphrase. And, I, again, instructive for us as spiritual leaders 
to, um, yes, like Ezra, we mourn, we weep, we carry the burdens, we own the burden and the confession with people. But also like Nehemiah, we say, I saw something wrong, I spoke the truth, I helped implement a plan to fix it, I helped set us on a trajectory towards health, these people are going to do what they do. I can't make the decision for them. God, you saw my actions. You see my integrity. You see my effort. Don't hold me accountable. Please help them. So both of those things, I think, combine in a spiritual leader. Take it personally. Carry the burden. And at some point, you have to say, God, you saw what I did. I acted with integrity. I did everything I could do. Please help them. I can't fix it anymore. I have another thing to do. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think those two characters combine are, are a pretty healthy picture of spiritual leadership um okay so that's the end of chapter 13 here's a couple themes and theological significance from nehemiah uh your blank is rebuilding can only get you so far rebuilding can only get you so far this is a lot like the the same thing in ezra like the temple's great it's not good enough nehemiah rebuilds the city walls it feels like okay we've got our identity back we've got our place back we feel secure we know who we are we're established, but just because you have that doesn't mean your heart's in the right place. Just because you have that doesn't mean you're going to live consistently, faithfully over time. It can only do so much for you. So, like, fixing the external things is just never going to solve your problems. But it's a valuable tool. Like, I think God is pleased they rebuilt the wall, but it's just not enough. So do that, but don't neglect the other things. Um, next, that little equation there. Scripture plus conviction plus action equals revival, I think. Scripture plus conviction plus action equals revival. That's what we see in Nehemiah 8. He reads the Bible, preaches it, and teaches it faithfully so that people can understand. The Spirit moves so that people are emotionally just wrecked. So I think teaching Scripture helps lead to that, but Ezra didn't create that. He just taught Scripture. God created the conviction, right? We can't control that. We can teach it clearly, but I can't make people feel a certain way. I can just make them... Uh, not have any understanding barriers. Mm-hmm. I can't even make them understand, but I can remove the barriers. And then when when it under, when they understand it and it gets in, then I think the spirit can create conviction. And when that then leads to action, which again is kind of like Nehemiah's prayer of like, I told them the truth. I helped them have a plan. I don't know if they're going to follow through or not. Like people have to own it too. And that when those things combine, then I think you get a period of revival in Nehemiah eight and nine, which is beautiful and ten which is a beautiful, beautiful picture of like, we're turning from what we used to do. We're obeying what we used to not obey. We're reading what we stopped reading. We're putting into practice things we had left for you know generations um, because scripture was clear and the spirit used that to change hearts mm-hmm. and then people agreed and made a move. Those three things have to combine. I think if you just, I think God could do anything he wants, you know, and could just create something. But God, I don't think, is just going to like snap his fingers and there's some revival and nobody knows what's happening. It's like, no, the Bible has been faithfully taught by people who are prayerfully trying to deliver it. God's Spirit showed up and that created power. People responded to that power with movement. Now we've got a culture. Now we've got you know, change that's more lasting. Um, but that's how it, how it happens, I think. Is that making sense? All right, so teaching Ezra and Nehemiah. This will kind of tie some dots together. We've talked about this stuff, but let me just put a couple other bullet points around it uh, for us. So interpreting this, I've kind of hinted this earlier, but to be more specific and direct, do the historical work, especially for these books. This would be true for the prophets. This is true for so much of the Old Testament. But these little books are, are great pivot points in the narrative, and they're great teaching things. Like, there's so much to teach here, so many little good application things here. But without the historical work, it's just not as impactful. And so I think it's worth placing this on the timeline for people. I think it's worth people helping understand, helping people understand, like, who are the Persians and why does that matter? I think it's worth helping people understand why it matters that they have a city and why they were so devastated not to have it. Like, why do you think Nehemiah was so moved to go rebuild the wall? It's not the, it's not the same as just, like, the show Hometown, you know what I'm talking about on HGTV? You know that one? So this is a couple from a small town in Alabama, right? Oh, so not the same. Sorry. Uh, sorry. But they like want to re- rejuvenate their hometown. And that's great. This, this is not the same as that. There's parallel elements of like, man, my city's torn apart. I want to fix that. 
but it's more it's not just I want my city to be more beautiful it's this is a sign a visible sign that God is not pleased with us mm-hmm. we need to fix it to try to get our insights to match the outside because God is back on our side we've been patient it's like it's the whole combination of everything does that make sense um, so it's worth doing all that stuff to help people understand, to help people see the weight of it, feel the weight of it. It's not just an interesting story. This is major pivot points that set up what the Jewish people were feeling when Jesus came on the scene, which is why it was so difficult for them. Does that make sense? And I think it's helpful to, to give people those historical dots and connect them so that they get it. Um, next thing. Identify the hollowness of attempted revival pre-Jesus. I think this is, we've talked about this some today, um, but I think this is really helpful stuff from these books. Can you repeat that? Hollowness. hollowness. I think that's a root word. Hollowness. Hollow it's just hollow. No, like, like, like hollow like it's empty. H-O-L-L-O-ness. Oh. H-O-L-L-O-W. Yeah, 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 it's, it's about the same. Um, so we talked about that, but I think, yeah, Rosie. I have a question before. Okay. So with what this is, I'm just going to ask. Just go for it, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what do you do in situations where you're maybe not in a teaching mm-hmm. situation, but you're just maybe having a conversation, and you notice, like, someone says something about, like, they draw a conclusion that's maybe not true, but they're not really asking for advice on it. Like, recently I had someone say, they've been reading through, like, the Old Testament, and I was like, that's really great. And then they were like, yeah, and I read that Moses doesn't even get to go into the promised land, and that, like, sucks. Like, that's so awful, whatever. But they weren't asking for, like, what does this mean? Like, I just didn't really say anything. Should I have said something? I don't know if it was, yeah. I think that's a, it depends on what what conclusion they're drawing, what statement they're making. So, like, that on the surface, I agree. Yeah. Right? Like, man, that sucks most of good Glenn. Yeah. That's not the whole story. Right. But I feel that way. So, okay. Yeah. But if somebody was like, you know, I was reading the book of Exodus, and Moses didn't go, get to go into the promised land, and that's why th- that I think that these stories just aren't all true, because there's yeah. no way that that's fair. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. can I tell you more to that story? Like, And that's a drastic switch. Yeah. But I think if people are coming to a conclusion that's like, that is mm-hmm. your, you have the biblical information incorrect. Mm-hmm. And so it's causing you to see the heart of God incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to say, well, have you thought about it this way? Or can I actually, can I teach you something? Because I think that's pretty cool. I used yeah. to feel that way too. But but if it's that where it's like mm-hmm. you're coming to a conclusion that's insufficient, yeah. depends on the situation. If that person is talking about like scripture's frustrating, mm-hmm. then I'll probably try to help them turn that corner. If they're just saying, if they're like reading it for the first time and experiencing the emotion of it, I'll probably just affirm that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, when you read those stories, isn't it? Like, those are real people. Mm-hmm. And it really does think you didn't get to go in. Mm-hmm. I get why, but, mm-hmm. yeah, it stinks. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's how I would handle I those I just wasn't angles. sure, like, like, you talk about, we need to set it up right, but if yeah. you're not teaching, like, in the everyday life, because mm-hmm. sometimes you're not, but you're still having conversations, like, yeah. what is that role? Yeah, I, on, on kind of that more broad scale, I would say, maybe this is just because it's me, but and this is kind of how I think and who I think I maybe to be, but I think this is true of all of us to some degree. Like, if you're called in ministry to be a spiritual, biblical leader for people, mm-hmm. to some degree, regardless of your giftedness, we are teachers of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Whether you think you are or not, mm-hmm. people see you that way because you work here. Mm-hmm. So um, I tend to think of most conversations, I, I don't actively think of it this way, but I'm not opposed to, in any conversation like that, I think part of my role probably if we're talking about the Bible is to be able to teach people mm-hmm. something. Now, I don't go into that thinking I'm above you. I don't go right. into that trying to lecture. But mm-hmm. I'm not opposed to shifting into that mode mm-hmm. anytime because that's yeah. what we do. So, again, depending on the relationship, depending on what exactly they're saying, I wouldn't hesitate at all to be like, oh, can I show you something? And I think when we're like excited to help mm-hmm. teach, that helps too. Yeah. It's one thing if you're just like, I'm always kind of lecturing and above you, but if people are talking about the Bible, they'll be like, oh, this is actually really, really cool. I learned something the other day. Mm-hmm. That's different than yeah. lecture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think posture and tone make a, make a big difference. But I'm not opposed to feeling like mm-hmm. a teacher yeah. at any given moment. 
because if I have stuff to teach and stuff worth teaching, yeah, anytime we can get there. Is what I would say. Does that help? Yeah. 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 That's good. Uh, okay, next one. Pay attention to how God uses foreign rulers. Pay attention to how God uses foreign rulers. We talked about that a little bit at the very beginning of Ezra, but I think that's really interesting in this story. Very often, these kings are essentially doing God's will. So there's a place in, it's, it's at least in Isaiah, but there may be one in Jeremiah too, um, where the word Messiah in Hebrew is used for a foreign king. You guys heard this before? And which is like, the, the Hebrew word for Messiah is not a capitalized word. Like we turn it into a capitalized word when we refer to Jesus, but it's just a word that means somebody who is like specifically chosen or orchestrated to do a certain thing. You know, so it's like, it's not necessarily a God word. It's more just like, you know, you could, you could say in the Hebrew language, like, like if it's your job to take out the trash, you can almost be like, I am the chosen one to take out the trash. So that would be a little, a little like, you know, you wouldn't talk that way normally, but that language works. Does that make sense? So that language is used to, to speak to a foreign king because God is using him to accomplish his purpose. Like God has anointed him to carry out something. And that's like we talked about at the beginning of Ezra. I think that's so much of what's happening here. It's not, I don't think we need to look at these and be like, wow, so was Darius like a Christian? Like, well, A, this is before Jesus. B, how is God using foreign rulers? It's not ju- just because somebody does something that ends up aligning with what God wants to happen. Doesn't mean we have to look for morality and example in that person. Does that make sense? So Darius and Cyrus, Artaxerxes, etc., do all kinds of things that line up with God's will. Because God is sovereign over all of it, but that doesn't mean that they were leading a Christian empire. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Haley. Can you say that one time? Just because. I don't know. I would be willing to, but I don't know what I said. <laughs> it's recorded. Yeah, there you go. That's true. What did I say? Just because. Just because somebody does something that aligns with the will of God doesn't mean that they're necessarily like following Him or doing it on purpose. That's not probably what I said before, but that's basically it. How do you crawl? How do you? How do you make a difference between somebody does something and it does align and somebody is aligned? I don't know. I think you would. And so that may be the case here. I don't know. So I would think probably only in relationship and seeing the fruit of a life can you really tell, right? So, like, did. We can bring that here. It doesn't always have to be foreign biblical rulers, but like. Did Barack Obama do some things as a leader that align with the will of God? Yeah, I'm very confident he did. Did he do some things as a leader that did not? Yeah, I'm very confident that that's the case. Mm-hmm. I don't know about his personal spiritual status mm-hmm. because I don't know him. But you were kind of doing that with Cyrus at the beginning. So how then, what did I, you see that you're like, I think it was more of God is sovereign over this idea that, or this thing yeah. that he did versus... I think I, I think so. I don't know for Cyrus. I would guess based on what else we know about the Persian Empire and the way those kings ruled, that they're not great people and not godly because they had other gods that they worshipped also. Mm-hmm. So that's the like. There's problems there that we know of historically, but I suppose it's possible that God got a hold of his heart and wrecked him and changed him. Mm-hmm. Or we see some things like that with Nebuchadnezzar too, mm-hmm. where there's like a really humbling experience you have where you're like, did he end up coming to like know and fear God? Maybe. I don't know. It doesn't really get into it. But more what I'm warning about in for these examples is don't just see, I did something that was God's will, so Cyrus is a good character. Mm-hmm. For, the, for the information we're given for this particular narrative, he did good things. Is he a good person for all of history and eternity? That's not what this is trying to tell us. So I just don't want to draw moral lessons from the way Cyrus acts because I don't think that's what it's trying to say. I think it's trying to say God is sovereign and is using whoever's in power to get what he wants done. Mm. But I don't know about the status of Cyrus or Darius or Artaxerxes or whoever. Does that make sense? It does. It probably doesn't matter that much in your normal Bible reading and Bible teaching. But I think it's, for me, it's helpful to like, I understand what's happening. I understand the kind of writing we're doing. And it's going to influence my applications to not 
because I think what I'm, especially in these books, which we'll talk about later, there can be a tendency to see any little thing that's like, oh, I'm going to teach on that and we should be that way. I think there's a tendency to latch onto that in Old Testament narratives, especially. Mm-hmm. But I want to be careful about that in my Bible teaching to not latch onto a good practice moral lesson when that's not what the text means. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. How do we not do that, though, like with like an Ezra as well? Or is it not? Like, how do we distinguish those things? Though? Yeah. I think, I think we know Ezra is trying to be faithful to God. We know he's trying, at least. So that, that's one thing. But another is kind of how I, hopefully, how I talked about it was helpful. And then, like, Ezra was trying to accomplish this goal. He's trying to accomplish the goal of holiness in the people of Israel. How he went about that, here's the good, here's the bad. But here's what he was trying to accomplish. And that, at least, we can affirm. Mm -hmm. And his methods, we can look at and say, man, at least this part of it makes sense. I think we we could be more zealous. That wouldn't hurt us. Does that make sense? Because I see the trajectory his motive is taking. So then I can examine the action and apply it based on what we need. That's how I would do that kind of intuitively. But Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Good questions. Uh, okay, this kind of applies to all that. Dig deeper than just leadership lessons from these books. Dig deeper than just leadership lessons. My guess is if you've heard an, a... My guess is you have not heard any sermon series or much Bible teaching on the book of Ezra. My other guess is that if and when you've heard a Nehemiah sermon series, it's probably been about leadership. And that's fine, and that's definitely there and not a bad application. Worth doing. There's also more to it, though. And that's why I would say like it's worth us figuring out spiritually, theologically, what place does this stuff play in the narrative? Don't just look at Nehemiah and be like, see, a great leader perseveres through opposition, and a great leader numbers his people, and a great leader... Mm -hmm. Those things are there. Do that. And also talk about why chapter 8 matters and why confession and repentance matter and the spiritual theological truths and trajectory of the book, not just Nehemiah did wise, shrewd things as a leader. Does that make sense? Again, that's, I'm not saying that stuff's bad. Just don't only do that because the text is richer than that. And I think we leave, leave a lot of meat on the bone if we don't dig more into it. Yeah? Okay, next one. Kind of following right up on that, these books do show the importance and power of leadership. Um, so again, that's not the only thing, but it's definitely here. Like when the people have a good leader who are really pursuing holiness, really pursuing wisdom, good things happen. So I would say find that in the text, but also in, in yourself. Remember, good leadership really matters and really makes a difference. And when Nehemiah steps away for a while and then comes back, right at the end of the book, and there's all kinds of problems. It's like, wow, he was a good leader while he was there. And when he was gone, the people suffered from lack of leadership. So it's worth being a good leader, for one, and it's definitely worth being a good leader who can replicate yourself so that when you leave, it can keep going. So all that stuff we can learn and leverage in our own lives from these books. Secondly, these books show the importance and power of Scripture. So unleash it. Big unleashed people here. Yeah, unleash the full, full, full force of the Bible to convict people. Thousands at a time. Thousands at a time. Seriously, though, Scripture's a big deal. And I, like you guys know this from me, but um, it's just worth saying again this is where the power of our ministry comes from. This is where the power in your conversation comes from. Like, God shows up when and how God shows up. And you can't control people's conviction level. Mm-hmm. But any lasting major change, I mean, in both of, both of your guys' stories today, but in how many of ours, it was like the pivot point came when I didn't even fully understand it all, but I opened the book and started reading it, and my life was changed. There's just something, even when you're reading it and you're like, I don't know what this means, but your heart does somehow, right? And it's like, it's strange. There's so much power here. And if this is what we primarily unleash, if we are known as people who like make this make sense and don't hide it and clarify it and talk about it and memorize it, and it's the power that comes out of us. And when people are sitting in a chair across from you crying because their life's falling apart, when you don't just have good advice, you don't just have empathy, although those are good things, but you have biblical power and biblical comfort yeah. to give, 
that's going to change people's lives. Yeah. Not just help them like you. It's going to change people's lives. So this is the power. Learn it, know it, teach it, love it, memorize it. It's all so worth it. This is the power for our ministry. God's power is the power for our ministry. He exercises through us as we give it to people. You know what I mean? So, big deal. Okay? Okay. Yes, Rosie. Um, I have a question that maybe you want to answer next week. Well, no, but go ahead and ask your question. And then I'll tell you more well, about that. I, I just wondered, so we were talking about how it was bad that they intermarried, mm-hmm. like someone who's different but didn't fester. So was it, maybe it wasn't her choice, maybe it was wrong, maybe it was, maybe this is why for such a time as this. Great. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a great question. It's a great question. It's a great question. Yes, Lacey. Yeah. You might have said this, and I just missed it, but is Zerubbabel a Jew, or, I mean, is he part of Israel, or is he, like, a governor from Persia? He's an Israelite. Yeah, he's like the leader of the people. He's kind of like Ezra and Nehemiah, who are like, you're going to lead these group of people. I think Zerubbabel, I don't remember, honestly, if he was just like kind of functionally governing or if he was still in the line of kings, because they kept track of who the kings were. He might have been that, or he may have just been the functional leader at the time. I honestly don't remember for sure. But, yes, he's an Israelite. But his name, I think, means planted in Babylon, which is interesting. So, but th- I would, th- if I'm a Jewish person who's trying to be faithful, I'm going to remember Jeremiah saying, hey, go plant yourselves, plant gardens, go get married. You're going to be there for a long time. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. So go be Babylonians. So I could see parents being like, you know what? We're going to make the most of this. Your name planted in Babylon because we're planted here. We're going to make the most of it. It's interesting. It's an interesting Israelite name for that time period. But yeah, he was a Jewish guy. Okay? Mm -hmm. All right.